The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Today I have for you Sarah Fine. Sarah is an educator and scholar working at the intersection of practice and research. Her work is grounded in the goal of transforming schools and classrooms into more humanizing places to teach and learn. She had me at humanize. She has served as an English teacher and instructional coach and earned her doctorate at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Presently, Sarah directs the teacher preparation program at High Tech High Graduate School of Education, associated with a network of radically and linguistically diverse charter schools in San Diego, California. Sarah has written for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Education Week, Edutopia, and Educational Leadership, as well as a number of academic journals. Her recent book, co-authored book, which will be the focus of uh, much of our conversation today, is called In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's great. I really enjoyed your book. I look forward to getting to that in a little bit. But before we do uh, get into that part of the conversation, I'd love to give the audience a chance to get to know you. So uh, you can go back as far as you want, or maybe it's just into the recent past. But tell us a little bit about how you got into this current line of work. Sure. Um, well, I will, I'll take your invitation and uh, say that like a lot of uh, educators, I come from a long line of educators. So my grandmother was a teacher in the Boston Public Schools for her whole career teaching fifth grade. Um, and both of my parents have taught at both the, um, the college and graduate levels. So um, teaching, I think, is in my blood, although I wouldn't have known this was what I was going to do in college. I think for a long time, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that because that's what I know. But of course, here I am. So I, um, like you said, I started my career teaching English at a charter school in the District of Columbia, um, did some instructional coaching, um, then eventually kind of ran away to grad school because I had a lot of questions that I was seeking answers to about the way that we were structuring learning for our students that felt somehow wrong, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was that was going on. So um, when I was at, uh, in grad school, that's when I encountered my co-author, Delmita, who's a professor um, at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And we launched a project together, which uh, we thought might be a kind of shortish project and of course turned into this decades-long odyssey looking for powerful learning in high schools, uh, trying to understand when it happens, why it happens, and why it does not happen more often. Um, and uh, my various connections that I made in the process of visiting schools across the country eventually led me to my current job, which is um, I am the director and the designer of a brand new teacher residency program run through um, High Tech High's Graduate School of Education. So that's been the last few years of my life is really trying to figure out um, the best ways to try to prepare pre-service teachers to teach in ways that are very different from what we might think of as traditional teaching. Now, the High Tech High Graduate School of Education itself is is pretty novel. It's essentially a, a school that many listeners, at least who know the K-12 world, because we have higher ed and K-12 people likely listening, um, many people know about it. They might have seen a documentary or two that tells the story of High Tech High. Um, but the fact that this is a 
a high school that essentially developed a graduate school. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and just the structure of the graduate school of education there? Sure. So High Tech High was founded in 2000 um, as a single high school, uh, charter high school in San Diego, um, with an aspiration to really try to do schooling very differently and disrupt the kind of traditional structures and assumptions that we have. And um, it fairly quickly began to, to spread and um, gain some traction. And so um, over the last 20 years, we have expanded into a network of 16 schools, K-12 schools um, in and around San Diego County. Um, and then also added on this graduate school piece. So the graduate school of ed um, was originally designed mainly as a sort of inward facing program for folks within the high tech high network who wanted to um, sort of leverage their learning, deepen um, their understanding of their professional practice, move into leadership roles from teaching roles. Um, so it was a, a little bit of a um, boutique program for a while. And then we started realizing there were folks who wanted to learn with and from us from beyond our network. And that's when we really started consolidating into an actual graduate school. Um, and we received our accreditation to offer um, degrees in 2015, I believe. So we're, we're quite young. Um, we're growing fairly quickly, although hopefully also with some real thoughtfulness around that growth. But um, our goal is to really leverage some of the things that High Tech High has figured out how to do that are very inspiring um, to the field. And then also really dig deep into some of the puzzles that we feel like we still are, are working on. Um, I sort of connect with educators from around the country who have similar aspirations and questions and engage with them around that um, sort of through the learning that happens in our GSE. Now, the book, uh, Deeper Learning, uh, The Quest to Remake the American High School, when I read it, uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you for the work that you put into this, a real gift for educators and educational leaders. So thanks for that. Um, but I actually thought about something when I was reading it, Larry uh, Rosenstock, who was involved in sort of the formation of High Tech High. I remember I went to an event in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a number of years ago, and he was speaking because there was work around the formation of a, a new school in, in Milwaukee. And I think it was a fundraiser perhaps for that. And uh, I believe it was at that time that he gave this analogy of um, – the toy, Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> and I don't know if you've heard mm -hmm. this one before. <laughs> I'm guessing um, I have. Yes. <laughs> so, and he told the story of Mr. Potato Head. I actually have, I, I ordered and, and have in my library, my office, a um, copy of the original Mr. Potato Head. And it was released not too far after the Great Depression. And on the front cover, it says, any fruit or vegetable makes a funny-faced man. And it didn't come with a potato. In fact, the idea was it came with some pins, with some a nose and mm -hmm. some eyes, and you would get a piece of fruit or a vegetable and you could make a funny-faced man. Of course, it was really poor marketing because here they are with a toy teaching people to play with their food right after the Great Depression. <laughs> <laughs> and just as parents are trying to teach their kids not to play with food. And he, he goes on to tell the story of, of the evolution of Mr. Potato Head and how uh, legal implications and policies and safety precautions and everything led us all the way up to this kind of contemporary Mr. Potato Head that is, that is so controlled that you can't even put an eye where a nose belongs because heaven forbid we'll teach poor anatomy to children. And, mm -hmm. um, and he used that to describe sort of the, the policy creep uh, that happens in many schools and how we create these kind of layers of bureaucracy and policy that, that inhibit us from really actualizing what most of us want in our schools. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought of that analogy quite a bit. 
uh, as I was reading through the book, because it seems like that's what you're getting at um, in the book, is this sort of vision for a more humanizing and deeper learning environment. So now that I guess I gave my elevator pitch for the book, I'm wondering maybe I should have started with asking you. But uh, if 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 you have to describe to someone in in a minute or two, what is this book about? Um, what's your elevator pitch? Well, you did a great job of it. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to have to steal that one. I think, you know, one, one kind of headline from the book uh, that is connected to what you just described is the idea that the way that our American society has structured schooling um, over the years, that the various traditions and patterns and policies that have kind of locked us into particular ways of doing and being in schools um, is profoundly misaligned with the conditions that are needed for rich, powerful, authentic learning on the part of students. Um, and that insofar as that kind of powerful learning happens in schools, and it does, which is, I suppose, quite heartening, um, it's actually kind of in spite of rather than as a result of the way that we structure classrooms and schools. Um, and so, you know, we in the book, we spend a lot of time digging into what is powerful learning actually look and feel like uh, in various contexts um, and try to make an argument that there are some core qualities that link those experiences when students are really learning deeply and also some interesting variations. Uh, and then we look at the, the ways in which the structures of our, our schools, as well as the traditions um, and the training and the policy environment and so on, are serving as significant constraints to getting that kind of learning more regularly for students. One of the themes that shows up in the book is the role of student choice, and that really resonates with me quite a bit. Um, I'm at a, um, a learner-driven college, one of the original experimental colleges where learner choice, voice, ownership, and agency is kind of central. Every semester, every student designs their own personalized curriculum. Mm. And, um, and so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about sort of how this role of student choice fits into this vision for sort of the remaking of the American high school. Yeah, well, one of the most interesting patterns that emerged for us when we were um, trying to find powerful learning in schools was that uh, the spaces where we thought we were looking for deep learning, um, which originally were sort of core academic classes, math and science and so on, English, social, social studies, um, those, we did see classrooms that were really in those disciplines, but they were quite rare. Um, it, was, it was really not very often that we would stumble into places where kids were really deeply engaged in what they were doing um, in those, those spaces. But, but the interesting pattern that emerged was that, in fact, in a lot of high schools, especially larger ones, uh, the places where kids were experiencing more powerful learning were, were the sort of peripheral spaces. So um, elective courses, extracurricular activity, after school stuff. Um, so, for example, we followed a theater production um, that was happening at a school. We followed a debate team. We looked at a number of um, elective courses, you know, green engineering, music composition, and so on. And those are places where not in every, but with much more consistency, students would describe things like the time flies by here. I see myself as connected to this work in some important way that is about my identity. So kids would refer themselves to themselves as like, I am a theater kid, or I am a, you know, I'm an orchestra kid in a way that they would not be like, I am a student, you know, or God forbid, a scientist in training. Um, and so I think that we, we often see that schools are really marginalizing the spaces that actually are, are much more richly structured to allow for deep learning. And, and rather than learning from 
what's happening there. Um, we're kind of uh, ignoring them, at least at the level of policy. So to get back to the question of choice, there are often places where kids are choosing to be there. And that's the biggest, the biggest but we get from people who we talk about our work with is like, okay, that's great. We, we buy it. We do see that pattern in our own schools um, that, you know, kids, some of what's happened more at the margins. But, you know, they chose to be there. So what do you do about that? Because, they, you know, we don't have choices about whether or not they take, you know, sophomore English. And our response to that is on the one hand, yes, that's, you know, the choice factor matters a lot, especially insofar as kids self-select into uh, environments where they're doing work that they, for some reason, have sort of deep personal engagement. But the best core classes we saw, teachers found ways to create choice within their curriculum in very meaty ways. So it's not just to like pick where you sit or pick if you read, you know, article one or article two, um, although that, that can be useful too in a small way. Um, but teachers were really trying to navigate some kind of line between having really clear goals for the kinds of concepts and skills they wanted their kids to develop uh, and also really having real opportunities for kids to choose ways to develop that, those concepts. So letting groups go deep into particular topics with potentially a shared type of artifact to be developed out of the work and some shared skill building along the way. Um, but, you know, creating, creating choice, I think, within is, it takes in some ways, you know, even more skill than it does to just teach a course where kids have chosen to be there. But I, I do think there are ways to do it. And I think that we've seen it happen um, to great effect. So for, for you, in terms of the book, do, do you see choice primarily as a tool to achieve greater outcomes or is there some kind of kind of philosophical underpinning that leads to advocating for choice in a school? I mean, I think that especially when you think about adolescents, they will have enormous amounts of choice the moment they step out of high school in terms of the kinds of learning they engage in. Um, And, you know, if we do our jobs well, our goal is for students to be empowered to make real choices as well about their careers and the types of work they want to be able to do. Uh, and so I think not making that at least one important piece of how we structure our schools is, is quite problematic. Um, I also, you know, I, I would not label myself a total radical. I guess I don't, don't really imagine a world, at least anytime soon, where we just blow up everything about how we structure schooling and have all learning communities be choice-based communities. But I think that the agency and to some extent the respect that real choices offer to kids is, is aligned with, you know, what adolescents are ready for, what they're going to need going into the world. Um, I think the more we constrain and micromanage everything about their experience, the less aligned we are to their, their needs and their developmental capacities. And so I, I would say that I think regardless of where it's within um, or across the types of courses we're offering to kids, I think um, having significant choice is is an important part of, of the curriculum as it should be. Another perspective that comes up in the book is this notion of the game of school, the game of school problem. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, and I, I would say I myself experienced this in a really significant way uh, as, as a student, as a high school student, that the way that we have structured schools and some of the traditions and routines and norms we have around schooling, especially schooling, secondary schooling, 
um, really lend themselves to both students and teachers treating schooling as something that is more about performance and credentialing and less about actual learning um, and the process of learning. And so, for example, especially in schools where you have students from, you know, with high cultural capital whose families expect them to go to college and maybe even to elite colleges, there's this scramble for credentialing. Um, you know, how many APs can you take? What did you get on the test? Uh, what did you get on the SATs? Um, you know, what did you get on the AP? I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways in which we structure schooling as a very sort of dog-eat-dog, individualistic type of endeavor where there's a, a sort of zero-sum thing around, you know, winners and losers. And of course, it mirrors some values we have as a society um, that I would love to call into question. Um, But I think it creates this kind of game of school effect where kids feel like their job is to figure out the rules of the game in any given classroom um, and to play them as best they can in order to perform as well as they can in order to A, sort of outperform their peers and B, differentiate themselves so that they can have a better chance at getting into the institutions that they want. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I think that, um, you know, certain kinds of credentials do afford students greater access to elite institutions in particular. And um, that's problematic, but it's still very much true. Um, and so that's where I think that there's all kinds of ways that we need to shift culture and policy and even potentially the kind of ecosystem of higher ed admissions so that everybody can feel that they actually can be more, they're allowed to be focused more on learning and going deep rather than wide. And sort of my learning is not at the expense of yours. We're not competing. We're actually just trying to go, you know, go as deep as we can um, in terms of developing understanding things and knowledge together. And so I think it's, it's very much built into the way that we approach the endeavor. And I'm not sure anybody really enjoys it. I think everybody just feels stuck in a kind of game that they can't get out of. Yeah, I call that the uh, culture of earning versus a culture of learning um, mm-hmm. uh, challenge. Um, it's it's interesting though too that uh, it seems to me that um, it's a culture that's difficult to break because there are definitely clear winners and losers mm-hmm. uh, in the system, and so there are people who are going to lose something. Uh, when we shift that, uh, in some of the one another neat thing for the reader people who haven't uh, read the book uh, yet, and they're just hearing about it now, the the book you dive into a number of specific cases. So you're taking people into schools and classrooms and giving them a glimpse of this. Are there any in terms of your own research any examples of schools that that you see as really exemplars for? Um, moving away from that performance focus to much more of a learning focus? Yeah, there are several um, in the book. The most obvious example would actually be the network of project-based schools we write about. But I would actually rather talk about the International Baccalaureate School that we saw, um, in part because uh, IB, for those who are not deeply familiar with it, is an an interesting hybrid of somewhat more traditional and, and somewhat more progressive or radical notions about education and and high school in particular. Um, And so IB, you know, a lot of things about the way we do school are preserved in the IB um, model. So, you know, we have the core academic disciplines that are still separate from each other. Work is not enormously interdisciplinary. Um, Kids are working in the tradition of the academic disciplines as they're seen in higher ed. Um, So, you know, doing high school English is still about, um, you know, 
reading great works of literature and writing essays, analytic essays about them and so on. And so it actually, IB is not so profoundly different from what we imagine high school to be. But we encountered um, a number of IB schools and one in particular that we wrote about where the culture of that particular school in a, a number of different strategic ways had been set up to create an experience which was more collectivist in nature and less individualistic and competitive um, while still maintaining very high standards. Um, and so this school, I think we called it ID High in our book, and we're not, we're not um, at liberty to um, name the particular school. But one of the important things to know about the school is it's a wall-to-wall IB school where, which is non-selective. And so it's a, you know, anybody can enter this school if they are admitted by a lottery, um, which means there's a real variety of kids who end up there. So IB is not reserved as a kind of goodie for the elite students in the school as it sometimes is. Um, Everyone is required to complete the IB diploma program, which is a sort of series of extremely rigorous um, courses and experiences that are required. But the school is completely emphatic with its teachers, with its students across the board that the point of having all students do the IB diploma program is the experience and the learning that comes from doing the program. It's not about getting a particular score uh, it's not even necessarily about earning the diploma because there are some students for whom that's that's not a real possibility, and yet um, they really celebrate the process. Um, and there's even some some research that backs up the idea that participating in the IB diploma program itself, regardless of whether or not you earn the diploma, is an indicator of um, persistence in college. And so, the school creates a culture where kids are really um, supporting each other where teachers are holding very high expectations for the work that kids do, but give kids an enormous opportunity to redo work when necessary. Um, there's, there's a sense of like, you, we will support you in mastering these skills no matter how long it takes you to do it. It's not that if you can't get it first time around, you're, you're out in some way or you're demeaned. Um, there's a sort of co- collectivist sense of like, we're in this together. Kids are supporting each other. And their mantra as a school, which I, I love, is... Um, Nobody gets cut from their sports teams. I mean, they, they literally, that is their policy. And, and they really cite that as an emblem of the way that they approach IB as well, which is that um, the process of participating and supporting teammates is the thing that matters the most. Um, it matters more than the sort of the credential that you may or may not earn at the end of the process. Um, and we saw IB schools, which had some similarities to this one, which were not able to accomplish that, which really continued to perpetuate these patterns of um, more advantaged students somehow scrambling and sort of shoring up their advantage through high IB scores. And so it's not, it's not inherent in the program itself. Um, it was some combination of the, the depth of the work happening inside of the classes combined with the school culture and the norms of the particular space that allowed that. Yeah, I remember when I first graduated from college, the theory of knowledge course in in the IB curriculum was always fascinating. That was my dream to teach that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great course. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Uh, So I want to go back to something you talked about before, and it's sort of uh, uh, tied to this this broader conversation, of course, is you you gave an example. um, You talked about the distinction between the peripheral versus the core and finding that some of the richest, deepest, most meaningful learning experiences were happening in the periphery, uh, ironically, in places where there isn't as much of a uh, culture of earning. It's much more about uh, something that's passion-driven or, or, 
or the like. And and I think the case I remember was you contrasted a English class where there was a pretty high level of disengagement uh, with what was happening in the theater program. Um, of course, the question yeah. that maybe some people would want to know is, so how do you make the theater program the main course? Uh, you know, what does it look yes. like? What does it take for a school that has these really amazing things on the periphery happening and to, to put those right in the heart uh, of the school? Yeah, that's that's a million dollar question. And that's where I, I sort of hover between like, let's blow up the way our, our system works and like act some refinement could get us pretty far. Um, I think that there are enormous possibilities in terms of continuing to make sure that kids are progressing in their foundational knowledge and skills while doing it in a context that is much more authentic and performance-driven. Performance in the most literal sense driven, not performance like a grade on a test. But if you think about a a, a theater production, um, you know, there is in fact a performance of learning in the truest sense that happens at the end of that for a real audience um, with real consequences if it doesn't go well. Um, It's not just something that is, you know, housed in one letter on one piece of paper that is only ever seen by you and your teacher. And so I have seen in project-based schools in particular, some real progress toward putting that periphery at the center. Um, for example, I've, I have seen at High Tech High, which um, like we talked about before is a network of project-based schools. I've seen high school humanities courses where in fact, one of the projects is to mount a theater production um, and where, you know, kids might be, for example, reading Hamlet. Let's use Hamlet because it's, you know, it's like canonical. Most high school English teachers would probably say that that has been part of their experiences teaching that text. So I saw um, recently a project-based teacher in one of our schools working with a group of juniors, and they did a deep study of Hamlet, which in some ways looked and sounded the way you might imagine a really skillful um, you know, for example, AP English class might, where they were doing textual analysis. They were, you know, even looking at doing some comparative video analysis of scenes. But they were doing it in the context of knowing that they were going to mount a production of Hamlet together. Um, and this is in a this is in a space where kids are not choosing their classes, where the teacher is not at liberty to select, you know, only the kids who have a theater background, for example. But um, I think theater in particular, but a lot of domains that live outside of the traditional academic disciplines really lends itself to differentiated roles, right? So when you have kids doing a theater production, they may all have studied and and deeply analyzed the play itself. But then when it comes to actually doing the production, the kids who are really visual, really great with visual art uh, might be helping with the scenes. Um, They might be consulting with the, the directors to try to understand what the the sort of particular type of interpretation the group is trying to mount and that factors into the scenes that they're painting. Uh, Kids who are really uh, good with electronics and so on might be working on the lights and the lighting. But again, that is connected to the decisions that the actors and the directors are making, right? You can't just do the lights. You actually have to be deeply involved in the choices being made. Um, And then of course, the acting and the actors, et cetera. And so I think there's... There's an interdependence there and there's an opportunity for differentiation um, that can kind of coexist with making sure that kids are still growing in their ability to read and write and make arguments and so on. And so I think it can happen. I think it will take teachers who feel supported and um, 
supported, sort of politically supported by their schools, but also substantively supported in learning some new skill sets that they may not have. Um, I also think that you can't really imagine doing that kind of work without teachers who have the capacity to work with each other um, and potentially with folks sort of from beyond the school community because, you know, as an English teacher, you may not have the the expertise on lighting and lights um, or so on. But if you could collaborate with the art teacher and with the, um, potentially with some of the science folks, maybe bring in some people from outside the school, then all of a sudden you have a, a set of skills across the teachers who are supporting the work um, that then aligns to the things you need to get done. And the English teacher's core work has to do with the sort of interpretation of the play, which is already hopefully inside of their wheelhouse. And so I, I think once you start asking those questions and trying to restructure schools a little bit in that direction, all of a sudden you you kind of naturally run into these things like, oh, well, we, sh- we need to be working in interdisciplinary teams if we're going to do this. And we need to have longer periods of time because you can't rehearse a scene in 47-minute period. So, um, you know, I think, I think it naturally starts to lead toward re-examining the, the grammar of our schools. Yeah, if people are, are willing to consider those possibilities. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I think. I, that, I think most. Mo- go ahead. No, I that. Go ahead. I think you know where I was going. So, <laughs> run with it. <laughs> well, I, I might be more optimistic than I think <laughs> you were about to be. Uh, I every teacher that Jal and I talk to, and we talk to a lot, a, the vast majority of them, with only a few exceptions, really want to be doing work that is more engaging and authentic for kids. They're desperate for it. In some cases, they just. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know how to do it. They, if they do know how to do it and they know what it looks like, they don't feel supported or like the structures around them get them there. So I'm hopeful that if we could change some of the, the environment and then boost some of the supports, we could, we could get pretty far. But it sounds like maybe you, you feel differently. No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, absolutely. I guess that's all I was suggesting was that um, it's hard for us to embrace possibilities that we don't see. Yes. So, um, so, so for example, in a lot of the work that I've done in schools, um, there is a great deal of resistance until people see what's possible, mm-hmm. until they see a, an actual example of a positive, engaging, project-based learning environment, there might be a measure of resistance. But when people see it and they see other teachers are actually capable of doing it and they see what's possible and, and they begin to have the freedom and the uh, safety to, to experiment with it. I, I, so I, I am quite hopeful, but uh, I do think that that sense of hope and possibility has to be there for, for the change to happen. Yeah, I and, and Joel and I are, are very much with you on that. In fact, I think it's one of the key pieces that links our book to my current job, right, is this conviction that people want to do well by kids. They want to be engaging, memorable teachers whose students learn really deeply. But you really, you know, all of us are normalized and socialized into the world that we ourselves have been students, right? Dan Lordy calls that the apprenticeship of observation. We spend 12 or sometimes 16 years observing our teachers, many of whom teach in very traditional ways. And then we kind of internalize that as what teaching is supposed to be and look like. And even if we want to change it, we can't until we've seen something different. So uh, in in the program that I run, one of our big goals is to not just have our our novice teachers observe classrooms that look and feel different, but actually give them them learning experiences which are different and position them as learners um, in a you know in environments and situations that mirror the values we're trying to instill. So we do a lot of work with this concept of symmetry, where 
the first thing we do is we we spend a week with our students having them do a project as learners and then you know periodically stepping out and having them think about the conditions that they're uh, that are enabling them to learn that way but um, you've you got to really change their reference points before you can start to change the practice yeah I agree I, um, there's I don't remember where I heard it but there's this notion that you can only possess what you experience and uh, mm-hmm. that resonates with me at least on a pro- proverbial level I'm not sure if it's true in every context but I definitely resonate with what you're saying and Sarah I'm grateful for your time on the show and for the work that you're doing and for uh, the time and effort that you put into co-authoring this book it's a real gift and I hope that listeners check it out in search of deeper meaning the quest to remake the American high school thank you it's been my pleasure thanks so much for talking Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.